0: Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Perhaps my favorite verse, Galatians 2.20 It embodies the reality that the gospel is a a function of God and his holiness and his sovereignty and his grace, forgiving me, Christ Jesus paying the price for me, and then inhabiting me. And the practical of that, East Haven, is when you go to Walmart, he goes with you. And when you go to school, he goes with you. And when you go to work, he goes with you. There isn't compartmentalization and separation. I have been crucified with Christ, and now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the testimony of believers. So wherever you go, he is with you. And yet there is something special about the church gathered and worshiping together. It is so good to see you this morning. Today I want us to think about two or three things As we begin a series. And I want to talk a little bit because of the role of being an interim pastor about pastors and preaching for just a moment. Uh, Pastors preach a lot of different ways. I met Dustin George about five years ago. I have been familiar with some of your other pastors in years past. Uh, Greg Warnock at First Baptist Brookhaven, I preached for him during a sabbatical just a few weeks before I came to be with you. Uh, I mean, I've, I've known a lot of preachers in the last 50 years or so, and pastors, preachers tend to have styles or commitments or strategies that they believe are most effective in communicating the truth of God's Word, elevating the Word of God, and communicating to their body, the church. Uh, occasionally a preacher will be very dogmatic about how that ought to be done. I sat once at a dinner, just three of us, at a restaurant in Jackson with somebody you might know who was a A nationally known pastor, and he was very dogmatic about this. He said, I believe the only way to preach is expositional, exegetical, line by line. I think it is arrogant to believe that you can know what your people's needs are and preach a topical message. We ought to simply be exegeting the scripture. That's all we ought to do. Line by line is the only way to preach. He was very dogmatic. That was a fascinating position. I pushed him back. I said, the interesting thing about that is it's not biblical. Jesus didn't do it. Paul didn't do it. Peter didn't do it. The prophets didn't do it. Nobody in the moment when the Spirit was leading in a moment of rebuke or correction or teaching started at the beginning of the scroll and preached line by line all the way through it. They spoke the truth of God in wisdom by the leadership of the Holy Spirit in the moment as the moment needed. So I'm not saying preaching line by line, exegetical, expositional is not a great idea. I'm simply saying when you're dogmatic and humanly speaking, we think we've got the plan, we probably don't have the plan. Some pastors, I don't know how Dustin preached, but some pastors will preach topically and it might be theological topics or it might be practical things. They might say, what's the wisdom, what does God say about, and then fill in the blank. About families, or about conflict resolution, or about the holiness of the work that we set our hands to. What might God say about missions and serving people, or doing the kind of things maybe we've talked about the last six weeks or so. That might be topical. Some might take a topic, I'm going to start a topic, well not a topic, but a book study today. Today. And it'll be somewhat topical, but it's actually a book study of the book of Romans. So it's a series out of a specific book of the Bible. Now, if you were to step into this room today and the cry of your heart was, God, I need help understanding the difficulty in my marriage or with my children, or I need to know how to share my faith with a family member or a friend or a co-worker, or you walked in and you said, God is dealing with me about Uh, surrendering my life to ministry or to missions i we could start in genesis 1 1 and begin to work through and god would honor his word it does not return void but it may not be exactly what you need today and and no pastor can know the needs in all the room of that my friend several years ago was absolutely true i just want to say to you that sometimes we think we have the way every pastor ought to preach Uh, In my years past, I've heard people who said, well, I don't feel like I've been preached to unless my toes have been stepped on. Some of you in the room have said that, by the way, haven't you? And there is some truth to being challenged by the truth of God's word and a challenge to live in obedience and rightfully. and, And sometimes our toes, figuratively, should be stepped on. But the pastor's job is really not behavior modification on you. It's not to shame you. We're not in shame. We're in freedom in Christ. It is to remind us of the truth of this glorious gospel that God sees us in our sin and loves us and provides a way of escape and payment for the sin that we could not pay. And in that freedom, as Paul writes in Galatians, it's for freedom you've been set free. And perhaps more appropriately we're to be reminded of freedom and the grace of God than we are to have our toes stepped on. Although toe stepping on is an appropriate function from time to time. So my word to you today as an interim pastor is be gracious and gentle about holding in your hands one style or one approach at preaching because Whoever God brings here may not do exactly that. And if he does that, he may not do exactly that all of the time. Sometimes we land on truth of God's word about a topic that we need to examine. I believe that that's what the Lord was leading in the last six weeks to talk about purposes of the church, worship, evangelism, discipleship, ministry, and fellowship. But today I'm going to start a series in the book of Romans and we're going to hit the high points. We're not gonna delve verse by verse. We're not doing deep word studies in this series. And there's an appropriate place for that, but I don't believe that's this moment in this time in this place. So, and I'm a fan of topical. I think we ought to talk about family and I think we ought to talk about evangelism. And I believe we ought to talk about uh, how we live in fellowship together from time to time uh, as the Lord leads. Somebody has said about preaching one way or the other, you know, it's a matter of faith that you would just simply preach through whatever passage and God will do whatever he will do in people's hearts. Let me tell you, that's absolutely true. God will do what he does in your hearts. The word will not return void. But the Lord's likely to use a presentation of the truth of God's word in a way that elevates the truth in the Bible and helps us understand and apply to us. We really need practical help and encouragement. We need an understanding of the Bible that's helpful. Talking about that for just a moment as we start this morning, uh, maybe your experience is something like mine. Now maybe you grew up in a home where you had kind of a theological education in your home. So you understood great doctrines early on and you learned more than Bible stories. You learned how they all fit together. But my experience over the years and the testimony of many around me has been a lot of us grew up with Bible stories or sermons about topics, but we really didn't understand the big picture. The last 30 or 40 years, the word narrative has been used. It's the story of of the Bible. It's the story of God revealing himself and his plan and his Savior for us to man. And understanding how the pieces fit into the big story of the Bible, that's, that's really important because you can understand who David was in relationship to the story of David and Goliath or King David and some stories. But there's a story about David and how he fits into the narrative of God, bringing about the Messiah at a point and how that's prophesied about. And Jesus comes out of that line. It is a fascinating story when we know the entire narrative. Now, there's much to know, and there's no shame in not knowing because the depths of God's Word are limitless. So if there's something you don't know, uh, welcome to the family. I mean, we, none of us know it. None of us know it all. But God's got more and more out of His Word for us to hear. Today, if you have a Bible, we're going to take a Bible tour today. Oh my goodness, we're going to start in Romans 1. And what I've simply subtitled this as, Romans, the big picture, it is the big picture of this letter of Paul to the church at Rome. I want to talk about a letter for just a minute because this is such an interesting dynamic in the church. And we have a tendency toward wanting to acquire information. So we break down sometimes these letters we often call these letters epistles. It's a great word. But we would break down this letter line by line, even word by word. That's interesting because we don't do that in our life. Um, I dated the lovely Kathy Black. And when we were dating, I was giving her a little, a little flirty, you're going to be my wife. Anybody feel me? Guys, did you ever do this? she just kind of string them along. You know, now, they didn't have a ring yet maybe, but you were doing some of that. Now, her last name was Kathy Black, KB, but occasionally I'd sent one of those little triangle notes to her. Now, I, I actually saw smiles in the room because some of you did this way back in the day. Had that little triangle note, and it'd be like GM plus KB forever. You, know, I know you never did that kind of silliness. And we were like young adults. We weren't even in high school, but I would occasionally send a note to her or a letter to her. And then when I thought we were headed toward being hitched, I would do something like GM plus KM. KM. And I found pet names for her like kitten mittens. I'm going to let that settle on you for just a second. I thought that was kind of cute. I'd call her Kitten Muffins. I'm not sure what that meant, but I, whatever, because it was a KM, and I was alluding to the fact I was going to give this girl my last name. And occasionally, she would write me a letter. And the letter, you know, if you're in high school, here's how your notes go and your letters go. Hey, how are you? I am fine. I'm in English, and I am so bored. I mean, that's kind of how it goes in high school. Can you think back to that? They, this was not the epistle to the Romans that you received in high school, but Kathy would write me thoughtful letters. We were young adults, and the letter might be a page long, and it would include what was going on in her life, and if we were apart, it was, you know, I'm praying for you about this, and this is what's going on with me and my family, and I hope you're doing well, and tell your sister hello, and I mean, it'd be that kind of thing. Here's what I did. I would read the letter. I'd read the letter. Because I wanted to read it from the beginning to the end. Dear Gary, I thought, oh, that's me. And I would read it and I'd get to the end. Love Kathy. She loves me. I'd read the whole letter. Sometimes I'd read it more than once. If Kathy was in one of those silly moods, it might even smell good. I'm just going to stand here while you think about that for a second. And I'd read it more than once and I'd read it from the top to the bottom. You know what we do with the epistles in the New Testament? We almost never read them from one end to the other. We read like four and a half sentences at a time. And we study them in ways that are not unfruitful, but maybe missing the big picture. Let me give you an example. If Kathy sent me a letter when we were dating, and I read the first line and a half, it said, Dear Gary, how are you? And I spent the next two hours exegeting the words, Dear Gary, how are you? Dear, a common greeting found in the 20th century of one to another who has some nominal relationship with another person. Broken down from the Latin, I mean, that would be silly. Dear Gary, Gary, a proper name given to squirrely boys in the 50s. It's nothing personal if your name is Gary in the room. But if I broke it down that way, it would be odd. What I did was I read the letter from the top to the bottom because somebody I knew loved me had sent me a letter and here's the challenge if all you got today was this and you acted on it it would be enough here's the challenge I want to suggest that all of us would be well served by reading the letters instead of reading a chapter or seven sentences or two sentences, or just our favorite verses, we would all be served well by elevating God's Word in such a way that we would read the entire letter. So you can read the letter of Ephesians or Galatians, for instance, or one of the Timothy letters or First John or First Peter. You can read those in less time than you can read a People magazine article or the article that will come out about the football games yesterday, you can literally read a love letter from God to you that contains deep theological truth in little time, but most of us don't do that. We do some study, but we need to read the letter. And Paul has written the book of Romans as a letter. Now, I'm going to violate that knowingly, in that we're not going to sit in this room now and read this entire letter because it is the longest of the epistles. It is the most systematic of the epistles. It is the most deeply theological of these letters. And because of the time, we're going to gain the big picture by reading chunks of this and weaving this letter together over the next several weeks. I think God will be honored in that. I would encourage you when you have a, a time to sit, to read this from one end to the other. One final word, and I know I'm kind of all over the map today. One final word about that. God has used uh, multiple translations in the history of the world. And if you handle your Bible and it's the King James or the New King James, that's great. If it's the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, the Holman, whatever it is, it's great. Some of them have more readability, some would say, than others. Whatever works for you, God will honor that because it is his word and it is a translation. I would encourage you to make sure you find a version, a translation that you can read that honors the Word of God, and that you can read and understand top to bottom through the letter. This morning, we're going to begin in the book of Romans, and we're going to do a little tour here. So here we go. If you're taking notes this morning, we'll fill in some blanks for you. Won't be terribly long, but I want to set this up because over the next few weeks, we're going to elevate. Uh, The truth of God's word, I believe, in this place, in this time. I'd like to pray for us this morning. In this moment, would you bow your head? Can we just all be very still? God, I'll speak to you this morning as a person that you've loved. As one in a room full of people whom you've loved. God, because you've loved us and you've revealed yourself to us and you've provided a way for us to practice your presence and know your Holy Spirit and uh, to have our debt paid for by Jesus. God, because of all of that, we want to say, sir, because you've loved us first, that we love you. And today it is my prayer that in these moments we would hear the truth of your word, our hearts would continue to be changed by the work of your Holy Spirit, And we would practice what we hear. Thank you for these letters, these writings that we're reading that speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Have your way in our hearts and lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's writing a letter to the church at Rome. Now, you know Rome's in Italy. Rome was effectively the capital of the known Western world during biblical times. And the church had expanded to Rome, but Paul had not made it there. So Paul is probably writing this letter uh, from Corinth. He is uh, loving these people. He knows some people. It's not modern times. He's not emailing. There's not an effective mail system, although there are messengers and carriers and those that took letters with them, obviously, all over the world as, as the truth of God's word was dis- distributed by the work of the Spirit. No doubt about that. There was no internet. There was no TV. The people in, in Rome who loved Jesus, who gathered as the church in Rome, they'd never seen a picture of Paul. I mean, think about that. This is is someone who is seen as an apostle with this great sense of authority as he writes by the very hands or or hand of God through him. They've never seen him, but he loves them. And, And no doubt, based on what we read, he's had a relationship with some. And he longs to get there. Paul has a background, as most everybody in the room knows, as a Jewish rabbi. He was highly taught and highly skilled, and he was well-respected. And then on the literal road to Damascus experience where he is met by Jesus, changed by Jesus, after the moment on the road to Damascus, Paul follows Jesus becomes a Christ follower and Paul uniquely gifted and schooled to be able to build together the truth of what it meant to be a rabbi and to be one of God's chosen people, the Jewish people, and know that Jesus was the Messiah. So he has a very unique, very schooled, rigorous education, uh, eloquent voice into the church And the assumption among so many who were Jews was that God had called them out. He had said, I'll be your God, you be my people. And there was a sense of pride, not without cause, but a sense of pride in that they were chosen. They were favored by God. So Paul is writing the book of Romans and in the beginning part of his call as a rabbi, as a Jew who is now completed in Christ is to say the gospel is true and has come to pass in the Messiah who is Jesus the Christ, Greek, who is Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. And, this is big, and the gospel is not just for those of us who were favored by God or chosen by God, but the gospel's for everybody. Now, I don't know how many of us are in the room, but I just have a suspicion that very few people have, here have a pure Jewish lineage. I'm thinking virtually, if not everybody, almost everybody in this room are Gentiles. And Paul is writing to the church at Rome, which has become a centerpiece of civilization and the spread of the gospel, to say, I, I'm the Jew among the Jews. I persecuted Christians, but coming to Jesus, I recognize him as the Messiah. And I need to tell you that Gentiles are going to be a part of the kingdom should they trust Christ. And he's going to explain some of that after some personal remarks. Now, If we have the scripture, I'm going to read here, and we're going to take just an aside from time to time and sort of encapsulate what we're looking at as we think about the greeting to the church at Rome. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is describing himself as an apostle. Now the apostles historically orthodox Christianity known to be the disciples of Jesus. That group of 12, then 11, then replaced 12, who followed Jesus, who walked in the dust of his sandals as a rabbi and teacher himself, and who were commissioned by Jesus to go forward advancing the kingdom. But Paul believes himself, and I certainly would concur, believes himself to be an apostle because of the way Jesus calls him specifically in his salvation experience on the road to Damascus. So he's writing and he's saying this, he's saying uh, to the church at Rome, we're all in Jesus together and he is affirmed who he is by the resurrection And then he uses often in this initial seven verses the word grace. We've talked about grace in here before. Uh, We've defined grace. There are so many definitions that are so great. It's like receiving something that you don't earn or deserve. It's unmerited favor would be a descriptor that we've heard for a long time. I've used the grace as receiving something you don't deserve. And those of you who've been with me on and off over the last few years, you know, judgment or justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is having what you deserve set aside. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. And Paul would say, I, in another place, I'm the chief among sinners. I'm the last person who deserves grace. And yet God has graced me and made me an apostle, and I want the Gentiles And, man, that's weird for a Jewish rabbi. I want the Gentiles to know that they can have faith in this gospel. Verses 8 through 15, Paul's love for the church at Rome. Paul loved these people, and he was longing to get there. Verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Stopping there for just a moment. Paul's writing and he's saying... I. I know that your testimony is extending to all the world. And I think about you all the time. I pray for you all the time. I have this longing to come to you. I'm hoping for an opportunity to open up. Verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Paul's writing and he's saying, "I've established." He, we're understanding as he's saying this, I've established churches all over, and we read those letters now. And God has brought great fruit to this ministry, and much of that fruit has been not only to those who were God's chosen people, the Jews, but to Gentiles. And he longs to go to Rome to do the same. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And here it comes. He wants to preach the gospel. Greeks and non-Greeks, the wise and the foolish. And as a rabbi, he would see the wise, thinking about even the wisdom literature that's woven through the Old Testament, he would see the wise as the people who would respond to God as opposed to the unwise. He would see the wise as people who were God's covenant people, the Jews, as opposed to the unwise. The Greek and the non-Greek, He's talking about people who have a belief system completely outside of the Jewish faith. And he's saying no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you have believed, no matter how bad you are, how distant you are from God, I am longing to come so that I might preach the gospel to you. And then verse 16 Commentators agree across the board. If there's a verse that sums up the key theme of the book of Romans, it's this. And we've talked about this verse multiple times in the last six weeks. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Starting right there. Paul is saying to all of us at East Haven, that's you and me today. No matter who your lineage is, no matter who your people are, the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for us. No matter what our background, what we've done, what we think we've understood about God, the gospel is for us. Verse 17, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. These verses are about the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God stands in contrast to the gospel. Can I just do this very simply for you? God, who is holy, And perfect and unchanging and all-knowing and all-present has this standard of righteousness because it's in his character and has created man who has shaken his fist and said, God, we want to go our own way. We would, and the scripture is going to tell us this, we would prefer to build idols or to cast shapes, or people, or worship Adam. We prefer to do almost anything, but align and submit to you, God. But the gospel is about bringing those who were distant back. I love verse seventeen. For in the gospel of righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, "The righteous will live." by faith. The reality is that God has a standard and Paul's writing to the church at Rome and he's saying there's a standard and the Jews know it because we work really hard to be religious to hit it and the pagans, the Gentiles, they have their own standards and they don't even live up to what they believe. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew and to the non-Jew, because none of us have lived up to it. Paul loves the church at Rome. Paul's love for the gospel, verses 16 and 17, really the theme of the book. And then if you're taking notes this morning, sin, men are without excuse. Paul writes and he says, and this is a long passage, so work with me. Take a breath. Here we go. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Can we stop right there? So that people are without excuse. Have you had those conversations, had those thoughts, have you struggled through? Um, what about people who haven't heard? What? I, it's a hard word, but mankind's without excuse. We're a broken, fallen race, the human race is. Not just, although Paul talks about this, so you know, but not just one act of Adam, but I, I have inherited original sin, theologians would say. But even if I didn't know that term, I'm sinner. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know there's a standard and I know I don't live up to it. And when I try to be religious and live up to it, Even Jesus says, if you have sinned in your heart, you've committed those sins. My heart betrays me. Paul continues to write, he says, for although mankind, they knew God, they never, neither, I'm sorry, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God... So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. If you want a description of the lost world, that's the description. That's it. And we live, follow this, we live in the, the ripple effect in the Evidence of the gospel being somewhat centric to the culture in which we live. So that there are still laws that are tied to the laws of God. There are actions that are somewhat tied to the laws of God. There are values that somewhat reflect the values of God. But the world itself looks like this description. Paul writes and he says, man, the nature of sin is this, that man would exchange what they know about God, there's no excuse, for the lie of worshiping people and idols, created things, even animals and reptiles. They would worship lots of other things instead of God. They would forget as unwise the God who has revealed himself and would worship the created things instead of the Creator, and then Paul writes, and he says it 's gotten so bad that natural things have become unnatural. People are slanderers and murderers and impure in their actions, and they 're insolent and they 're disobedient and, and it's down to the it 's down to what we sometimes call the granular. And they disobey their parents. And that's okay because anything goes. And without being overly preachy or uh, alarmist at all, I think I've used this line six weeks ago. People, we live in a culture that is untethered to truth. Let me say that again. We live in a culture that is untethered to truth. And it's inconsistent, and it's going to be inconsistent because that's the nature of the lost culture. You know, we all probably see the articles or see the memes if you're a social media person or something. I saw something the other day that says, We live in a culture where a little boy cannot pretend to be an Indian, but a grown man can pretend to be a woman, and we have to celebrate that. uh, We're untethered to truth. Truth paul's writing to the church at rome there's nothing new under the sun and he's saying people without a relationship with god who worship and respond to god are untethered from the truth man is without excuse the second chapter first verse and i'm going to stop at kind of an odd place this morning that's the plan But I want to give you hope before we go. Read this passage with me. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You, therefore, Paul's writing the church at Rome, and it could be the church at Brookhaven. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself Because you who pass judgment do the same things. And Paul, as a Jew, by the way, is writing and being heard by Jews who had this righteous standard, this legalism, who pass judgment on others. It's almost a full-time job. He said, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? I'm going to read that again. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Good news this morning. And part of the good news that is a part of this letter to the Romans starts right here. The challenge... Paul writes to religious and non-religious is, do you hold this kindness and patience and forbearance of God in contempt? Do you recognize that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance? It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. If I'm being transparent this morning, You know why I don't really like stepping on toe sermons? Because God's heart is demonstrated in that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Because he's kind to us. He's a father to us. He's adopted us. He's lavished us with grace. He really loves us. He really loves us. And he empowers us. And it's not about trying harder or doing the stuff and keeping the rules. It's about practicing and understanding and living in his presence. For I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. People, if all you hear today is this, hear this. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. This morning we're going to sing together and you'll have a chance to express in a public way, in a tangible way, any decision, anything that God's doing in your life and your heart. But I'm sure it's his kindness that brings about repentance in me. It's God saying, Gary, I love you, and I need you to turn to do a 180 and to walk another way in some area of your life or to surrender some things you're holding on to or to add some, some discipline or some love or some patience by the work of my Holy Spirit in you. But I do that because I love you because I'm kind to you, Gary, as a good father. So this morning, whatever whatever God's doing in your heart, in your mind, whatever practical expression of that would occur today, it's out of his kindness. It's out of his love for you. And I would trust that you would respond. I'm going to pray for us. We will sing together and continue to worship. I'll be at the front. Phil will be here. Uh, We'll do whatever we need to do before or after the service. But we would love to encourage you. About the God who d- demonstrates love, patience, and kindness toward his children. Would you bow your head? Father, it is my privilege to call you Father uh, just because you love me. Not because I deserve, but because it's your kindness, it's your grace. God, my heart today, the desperate cry of my heart is that every person in this room would know your kindness, would experience your grace. By your kindness, I and every person in this room would repent of the things we hold on to that don't honor you, that don't lead to life. Father, I know your word says choose this day who you'll follow. Choose this day whether you will choose life or death. So my prayer today is that in an ultimate way for those who haven't trusted you before, that they would choose life. And for those of us who are Christ followers, who love you and are loved by you, God, I pray today we would choose life in a fresh way, a fresh obedience, a heart for you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being in our lives as we've trusted you. Thank you for being able to gather in this place to be encouraged. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, it's a lot this morning. We've read a lot. We've absorbed a lot. Help us to be able to apply to our life. We know that's a part of what your spirit does. So we say, God, we surrender to you. We love you, Lord. And we're grateful for you. I pray you would give each of us an obedient response to what you're doing in our life and our heart. We trust you in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together.